Blog Talk Radio. This is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at School. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs each Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help challenging students and implement the collaborative problem-solving approach in your classroom and your school. If you have a question or comment, call 646-727-2691. Once again, that's 646-727-2691. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about challenging kids and how we can help them. Hello there. Welcome to today's program. Um, <clears throat> we try to do this every Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time, um, covering a wide range of topics related to how to implement collaborative problem solving at school, how to do a better job of disciplining kids who have behavior problems so that it actually works, how to help the really challenging kids in the building, the kids who are taking up a lot of time and a lot of energy so that they take less time and less energy and so that we actually end up helping them. These are your 45 minutes, though. So if you're uh, working with a kid who's not responding very well to Plan B or running into trouble using Plan B in any way or having difficulty using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems or having difficulty getting folks at school to buy in, feel free to call in, comment, ask questions, get the support you need, or just listen to what's going on with others who are using the collaborative problem-solving approach. Once again, if you want to call in, that number is 646-727-2691. If you're not the type to call in, if you'd rather use your fingers, email me. Just go to the Lies in the Balance website and send me a question electronically by clicking on the contact form. The Lies in the Balance website is www.livesinthebalance.org. And if you haven't explored the Lies in the Balance website yet, you've got to check it out all kinds of stuff on there to support you and your efforts to use collaborative problem solving. Now, we have a special guest today, um, but I want to give you the word of the week. No, I don't have a word every week, but we've got a word of the week this week, and it's continuity. Continuity. Helping challenging kids in a building, I don't really care which model of care you're using, what approach you're using, Whatever you're using, it's going to take continuity, but nothing requires continuity like collaborative problem-solving requires continuity because collaborative problem-solving, and you're going to be hearing about this from our guest, collaborative problem-solving requires continuity because, number one, collaborative problem-solving helps us understand that the problems don't get solved overnight and you don't help a challenging kid in a week. Nope. It's a continuous effort over time. Continuity of effort is crucial, but because, quite frankly, the, the same unsolved problem may require numerous 
attempts at plan B. You know, sometimes you don't get all the information that you needed in the empathy step. Sometimes the solution that you thought was realistic and mutually satisfactory wasn't as realistic and mutually satisfactory as you thought it was, so you got to go back to plan B for that, too. Sometimes it just takes folks a while to get good at it. Sometimes it takes a little bit of the ingredients of plan B to get the communication going, to get the relationship going that permits problems to be solved, that sets the stage for problems to be solved. All those things require continuity, continuity of effort over time. But collaborative problem solving, because it requires, because it's such a dramatic departure from the way things have traditionally been done in so many buildings, well, you don't change the way things have traditionally been done in many buildings, in any building, overnight. It's going to require continuity. And a big part of continuity is recognizing you're in this for the long haul. This isn't just a taste of collaborative problem solving. This is a commitment to understand challenging kids better, to establishing relationships with them that are helpful, to solving the problems that are reliably and predictably precipitating their challenging episodes, to teaching them the skills that they're lacking. That's continuity. And it's continuity if you want to break away from what you've been doing all along. You don't help a challenging kid in a week. You can get a good start in a week. You don't end decades of ways of dealing with challenging kids in a week. You do it little by little, bit by bit, one kid, one teacher, one building, one school system at a time. And we are lucky to have with us today a gentleman who is doing just that in his way in his elementary school in Sanford, Maine. Now, Sanford, Maine has had quite a bit of collaborative problem solving because of a project that was funded there by the Juvenile Justice Advisory Group in Maine. But uh, this year, one of the schools, several of them, but one in particular that's gotten uh, quite an energetic dose of collaborative problem solving has been Lafayette School in Sanford, Maine. Uh, and the gentleman who has been leading a good part of the charge is Tom Ambrose, who's the principal at Lafayette School. Mr. Ambrose, welcome to the program. Thanks, Dr. Green. It is uh, a pleasure to have you on today. I've gotten to know Mr. Ambrose during the school year, and uh, let, me, let me assure those who are listening, we've got somebody on with us today who's got energy, vision, commitment, and uh, as we'll probably talk about, that's a good thing because um, you're working in a uh, school, and uh, perhaps you'll let us in on this, perhaps even a neighborhood that's going to take energy commitment and vision to help many of the kids who are walking in the door. But I'm delighted that you're with us. It's a pleasure to be here. What can you tell us about um, collaborative problem solving at Lafayette School? Then I'll ask you some more specific questions. But what's it been like for you this year as a first-year principal implementing a model that is um, not exactly traditional discipline? Well, I think it's it's been really exciting because my, some of my staff members had had some significant positive experiences with collaborative problem solving prior to my employment. 
So when I came on board, some people had some skills and some people were still working on their skills and some people hadn't had as much exposure. So I've been able to uh, tap the organic resources that are in my building for my own professional development. And then I've also been able to align and work with other folks on, on developing their skills, which has been a really exciting process for me as a leader to kind of uh, utilize the organic resources in the school, do some learning myself, and to work with uh, the CPS coach, uh, uh, Kim. Kim's been, been excellent for us. So you've so been, been a, lucky enough to have uh, coaching, some coaching, for your building specifically, and that, that's something not every building has access to. So you, you guys have been lucky in that way, yes? Yeah, yeah. It's been one day a week, and most of the teachers uh, meet as a group before school starts and meet with, uh, with Kim Hopkins, our, our CPS support person. And then I meet with Kim every Monday for about 45 minutes for my own professional development, and I also spend some time supporting the staff, so if a staff member needs to meet with Kim and they're not uh, free, I'll cover their class or, or provide support uh, with regard to coverage so that they can have a chance to develop their skills with CPS. That's been a big part of the process this year, not only uh, aligning the resources for Lafayette, but actively supporting them uh, in, a, in a variety of ways. So we can talk about the whole building in a little bit because I know that there's people listening who want to know what's it take to implement cloud problem solving in a whole building and do you need a coach to do it. Um, but let, let's talk, there's two parts of collaborative problem solving. There's the conceptual piece, sort of the point of view of why challenging kids are challenging. And then there's the actual doing of plan B part. Um, which, which, have, which part did you find to be the most challenging for you personally? You know, it's interesting because I've, I've, I, philosophically, um, I philosophically kind of have a natural alignment to CPS because I have a master's in school counseling. So the, the empathy component of CPS, which can be one of the most difficult parts to learn, uh, I have had a lot of skill and training with through my counseling classes. I think for me the hardest part of collaborative problem solving is when I'm in a conversation with the student and I'm trying to figure out what the problem is and how to find a, a realistic, plausible, effective solution to the problem. Sometimes I get stuck in the conversation and I need to check in with someone else who has a little more skill or a little more familiarity with the model to, to get myself unstuck. I think part of that comes from years of counseling training and experience as a counselor and kind of trying to let the, the student or the client lead the way. Um, whereas with CPS, it can be okay to lead a little bit. Hey, well, you know, so you're stuck here. Well, did you think about this? Or is this a problem? Or is that a problem? Using that language, I've had to kind of untrain and then retrain myself a little bit to feel comfortable being a little more on the leading edge of the conversation. Speaking of the word leading, um, there are buildings that I've worked with where uh, I've been working with the staff and never saw the building leader. Um, now, that's not all buildings. In fact, that's not most buildings, but it's been some buildings. Um, pretty cool that you as the building leader have not said, this is something that my staff needs to get good at. I'll kind of watch from the sidelines but rather this is something my staff needs to get good at and this is something that I plan to get good at right along with them. Have you run into any leaders who don't lead that way? Oh, certainly, yeah. I mean, it's my personal philosophy that, that effective leadership is led by, we lead by example, what we do. And, and um, as the, the leader of a building, I, 
I have to make a commitment to the um, to the values and beliefs that that I have, and then and then use those values and beliefs to guide my actions. So I really believe that every kid has the ability to learn, and that um, it's my job to ensure that every student has an opportunity to learn. And so within that framework of, of my personal beliefs and attitude, CPS is a critical component on a variety of fronts. And the, the primary front is that we do have to accept what's coming through the door, the, who the kids are, where they're at. And so what I've done is I've engaged in this process with my staff as a, as a, a partner in a, in a, and, and I will ask them questions about CPS and let them know where I'm stuck and, and let them see me as a human being who's learning along with them instead of someone who said, oh, this looks like a good model. You guys do it and I'll give you some resources to do it. <laughs> Speaking of what's walking through the door, uh, Lafayette School uh, got some interesting things walking in the door? Yeah, we have, some, we have wonderful children and some of them come from, from, uh, from families that struggle economically and some of them come from families who have had a difficult time with education themselves. And uh, not unlike many American schools, sometimes kids may have parents who, who have enough financially but maybe don't have social or emotional resources to share with their children and help their children to learn how to communicate effectively. And so we, we do see a, a large number of free and reduced lunch students in our school and students who need support on a, on, on a variety, if not all, fronts. What, just so people have this in perspective, what, what is your percentage of free and reduced lunch? I think right now I'm at 79%. Okay, so that's, I mean, that's usually an indicator that what's walking through the door c can be different than what's walking through the door in a school that has 5 to 10% free and reduced lunch. Yes, the resources and skills can be significantly different, and, and I think that we have to accept the reality that some of the students are going to need more support and then find ways to meet those needs in collaboration with the parents who also may have a negative, may have had a negative experience in public school in the past. And I know that um, that you've had experience in a variety of buildings. Um, to, to, how different is it to try to work with kids? You know, there's a few, there's lots, so many things impinging on educators these days. Sure. There's high stakes testing. There's no child left behind. There's you don't want to be a failing school, and a lot of that doesn't always take into account what's walking in your door. H how do you mm -hmm. balance all that stuff um, and keep your head on straight? Um, well, I think personal organization is critical, and and I think that the 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 balancing piece becomes a matter of priorities. It's impossible to learn if the student isn't emotionally centered. So. Or, or it's harder to learn if you're not emotionally centered. So I, I try to think of it like, like um, a student who has emotional, social, and maybe financial concerns comes in like a tornado, and it's my job to kind of tame the tornado and, 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 or, or get the tornado's energy focused on what I want it to be focused on instead of on things that it can't control. So I guess that would be, I mean, I'm making that up right now while we're having this conversation. I'd never used that imagery before, but I don't like the term taming it. I like the term focusing it. So it's, it's our job to, to accept what comes through the door and then try to find a way to focus them on that which will help them to have a better life. See, that, that, that goes back to that basic philosophy that, just to return to that for a moment, that, that we as, 
as educators are the only profession that affects every other profession. We are the, the profession that allows us to have doctors, lawyers, professionals, businessmen, creative engineers. It really is the, the education is the foundation of the society that we consider to be American. And so it's my opinion that every kid really truly does have a right to learn and that if their energy isn't focused in the appropriate direction when they come to school, then they don't stand a chance in the society that we've constructed. So those comments suggest that not every kid walks in the door ready to hit the ground running on learning. And exactly. educators need to – I mean, th there, there are folks who perhaps don't necessarily come from a disadvantaged background, perhaps do, it's, you, you never know how that's going to break, who are basically anticipating that or expecting that every kid comes to school ready to learn. And it doesn't sound like every kid in your building comes to school ready to learn. Uh, yeah, uh, I've never worked in a building where every kid comes to school ready to learn because I've worked in some some schools that have a higher socioeconomic standing, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't still a large percentage, 10, 15, 20% that came from struggles. And so I think that, that it's important to recognize that even if you come from a higher uh, socioeconomic standing, you may still come to school with struggles because it may be that that kid comes to school and has more material items or whatnot, but the parents are workaholics. I mean, there's just a variety of issues that come through the door. So one of the keys for me as, a, as, a, as an educator to be able to do this job effectively is to accept that I don't really know what's going on for the student and that it's, it's my job within reason and, 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 and professional limits to try to, to figure out so that the student can focus that energy on their learning. So it, it wouldn't, to me, it wouldn't really, it is important to recognize that the CPS model is extremely effective when you're working with folks who are struggling financially and, and emotionally and socially. But I think it's really important also to recognize that the CPS model for me as a guidance counselor and as a principal has answered a variety of questions that I didn't have answers for in the past. It kind of synthesizes a lot of ideas that I had into a cohesive model that I can use to guide my conversations. Now, the, the skeptical listener might say, going back to a question of a few minutes ago that I had, um, look, we are being judged by how we do on our test scores. Mm. Um, we are not social workers. Mm -hmm. um, no one's legislating that we be social workers, but people are definitely legislating what happens to us and our building if we don't do well on test scores. Um, you seem to be saying, yeah, but you're not going to teach the kid anything until you get on top of the other stuff first. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. And I was kind of chuckling to myself because I was starting to think that people might think that you paid me for this uh, <laughs> conversation because I'm so positive about the model. But I, I, I just think that, that it's important to recognize that the model is, is one component of, of a, a very healthy classroom experience. And so, yes, I'm saying that we, if we go into education and we think that we don't have an obligation to the students to build a community within a classroom, if we think that students are going to learn without a sense of community within the classroom, then, then I would certainly suggest that, that that would be, it would be a very difficult long career in education because the reality is, is that all of my personal learning experiences have always happened in an environment where people felt safe to offer their opinions, 
safe to expose their weaknesses, and they felt like the, the, the it's like Harry Wong says, the first thing the kids ask when they walk into school isn't, isn't, you know, can I do this or am I good enough? The first thing they ask is, does the teacher like me? Does the teacher care if I succeed? Well, I just view CPS as kind of an organic or natural way to just show people that you, you, you care. And I think the key to CPS, going back to the, the model and the struggles, is that at first it kind of takes a while to have the conversation. So my staff would say, how do, you, how do I have time to do this? But what they're experiencing excuse me, and what I've experienced is that the conversations go much quicker once the skills are developed and, and kind of uh, in alignment with what you were saying at the beginning of this presentation was that you were just simply saying, we, uh, we don't make change, it, it, there's no quick fix. We don't make quick change that's effective. When you learn something that, that has some, some significance or some, some, uh, some real efficiency or, or that will be truly effective, it does take an initial investment of time and work. Well, and that's the continuity part that I talked about at the beginning of the program. This, because people are so busy and because educators in particular, I find, have things coming at them from all sides, um, mm -hmm. curriculum and um, response to intervention and um, school policies and just just you name it, you could probably do a better job of naming all of the different forces that, you know, in the same way that uh, – Everything in society is impacted by education. If I was to paraphrase that and turn it around in a different way, uh, lots of forces in society try to impact education. Uh, it's, it, it sometimes seems to me that people are hoping that schools will fix everything. And it makes a good deal of sense to me that sometimes educators, the people who are working in the trenches, um, start to feel like they can't do everything. What, what's been the hardest part of doing this in your building as it relates to staff buy-in, et cetera, uh, aside from the continuity piece, which is that, you know what, it does take a while to get good at this. Well, I think that the key is when people have initial success. I've had teachers come to me and say, you know, I tried the CPS and the CPS model, and I actually got some information that I didn't know about. And then the next step would be teaching people that when you do CPS, it's not just a, uh, you, usually you don't have just one conversation and you're done, you've solved the problem. Although that could happen if it's a pretty concrete problem, but typically it's kind of like an onion and you just keep peeling back the layers. And so um, CPS conversations could be ongoing, which is why with the, with the, the forms that, that are included in the, in, in, you know, that we use to guide our conversations and decisions, the, the, the forms kind of give us some information, then we can choose a problem to work on while consciously choosing not to work on a couple of other problems. Whereas before, I think people would try to like plan A everything and tell a kid what to do and then deny that the other problems exist. And so I, I hope I'm answering your question, but, but it, it just kind of, I think that the, the thing that builds forward momentum and energy is when people get some success with CPS. Yep. And I think what you were embedded within your response was um, the form that we use, the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, which I always say really organizes the effort. Number one, it helps us get the right lenses on. And I do want to ask you if I know your school had had some collaborative problem solving before you arrived on the scene, but one question is to what degree do you feel like there was still some lens changing to be done? 
But then the other thing that the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems does is it organizes the effort by helping us identify these specific unsolved problems that are setting in motion a student's challenging episodes, helps us prioritize which ones we want to work on first, um, then we got to get good at plan B. But the ALSIP, as I call it, really helps organize the effort by making sure we have the right lenses on and by organizing which unsolved problems we want to start working on first. What, what, um, how much lens changing remained to be done once you arrived on the scene at Lafayette School? I'd say about 60 to 65 percent. I had a, I have a small school and a small staff, so one teacher was uh, Dorothy, who's on the website, is was rolling pretty quickly with it. Um, a couple other people had some skills, but were feeling a little bit stuck, and a couple of people hadn't really been engaged. Got it. What What'd you do to engage the unengaged? You know, I I've kind of asked myself that question because I'd like to be able to replicate that process. I think that. Uh, as with any change that, that may be needed, I always go to the staff and ask them what they need and want and try to assess what the health of the organization through direct conversation with the people who are working with kids. So I, I sat down with each of my staff members before school started last year for 40 minutes each. They told me what they wanted to see change, what they wanted to see grow, and then I synthesized all that information and we did goal setting together for two hours as a team. And so the, the collaborative problem-solving model was, was something that seemed to uh, address some of the concerns about what was coming through the door. So basically, we, we just said, these are the problems. And so I said, well, I kind of hear that the CPS thing is pretty cool. What's up with that? Which is kind of funny, because I actually use the language that, that I've heard Kim tell me a lot. And, and I said, so what, what do you think about trying it out? And the, the energy that I got from the staff was, if you're willing to kind of support us in this and really do it, and we can get some help, then, then yeah, we'd be willing to give it a shot. So then I invited you in to meet with the staff, and um, some of the staff members shared their positive experiences which could be replicated through attending a workshop, a three-day workshop. You know, people from a staff could go and hear about CPS and hear about the conversations and learn some skills. So that's one way that I've thought of that that could be replicated for someone who doesn't have the services that, that you know, we were lucky. We had Kim available and, and I'd had contact with you. Um, so I guess that the way that I got other people involved was, again, hearing and seeing tangible success, people in the building who are having success and being able to converse with them was, was really helpful. But I also think the other thing is that I, I, my buy-in was, was critical as a leader. I really think that it's, uh, it's, it's a really great model and I think that it's really worked for, for some people here and I've had some pretty good success with it too. So imagine trying to do this without... Um, you've had some extra assistance because of a research project. Um, but there are lots of schools out there doing this. You know, I usually turn my cell phone off before I do these programs, but today <laughs> I forgot. It's off now. Um, people who know me well know that my cell phone rings constantly. That's why I usually turn it off before the program. Sorry for the extra sound effects, folks. And by the way, before I ask this next question for Mr. Ambrose, um, if you have a question for Mr. Ambrose and you're listening live, once again, the call-in number, 646-727-2691. So now we have an example of something that I always forget to do, which is to give the call-in number, and something that I usually remember to do, which is to turn my cell phone off before it rings. 
Imagine doing this without extra help, because I know there are many schools out there that are not only in the midst of doing it, but doing it reasonably well. I hear from them all the time, but doing it on their own. What would you have done differently if you hadn't been part of a research project uh, in which you got some extra resources and training to implement collaborative problem solving? What, what would have been different? What would it look like? Well, what it would look like to me is that <clears throat> I put a lot of thought into this because certainly I, 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 it's, it's important for me to figure out how to uh, implement new initiatives and have them be sustainable and effective because the, you know, initiatives should be driven by need. And so my thought was that what I would do is assemble a team of people who are kind of naturally working pretty well with at-risk or struggling students. We all know who they are. They're the, quote, good teachers who get all the bad kids, uh, which has been a very big concern for me since my beginning in education. Um, so I would probably ask some people to participate in a book study where we read the CPS book and um, talked about the idea to kind of almost as like a, a subgroup to kind of do some professional development around CPS. Then I would try to attend a regional workshop with CPS and or look at other schools in my area who may have had access to support and or regional workshops and then collaborate with them and kind of talk about what works and what doesn't work and the ways to do that. And uh, if I couldn't get in touch with that, I would use the website. Uh, I would listen to these radio programs. I would. I would begin to email people who were using CPS and begin conversations with them via email. Um, and then I would start, I would actually have a small subgroup of a large school. Let's say I had 40 staff members. I would hope to get four to eight of them to do CPS together and work with each other. Uh, hopefully there would be some support people on the, in the guidance staff involved because of their training with counseling and work together by reading the books and, and trying to to um, begin a little culture of communication about when you get stuck because the hardest part about working with a kid who's stuck is that they're going to get stuck in a conversation with you and the only way to get through that is to sometimes just say, I'm stuck right now, I need to think about this and get back to you and then plan C or, or take a break from it at that time so that you can then go back to the conversation. Um, I, I think it's also important to, to build support within the building so that each person can support each other in getting better with the model and then hopefully over time as that as I know it will that those conversations will get results and then as those conversations are getting results that information would get out to the building and then other people would, would get involved and you could start to roll it out either through uh, a you know, year-long professional development focused on this one need and or um, doing it uh, by inviting other people to join join the subgroup. People on staff talk Ross, you know, they talk and they talk about what's working and what's not working and I've noticed that they will talk about something if it really is working. So the key is getting a small group and really digging in and learning the skills and then letting that culture begin to grow within the school. And what you're describing is something that I've heard about other schools that neither I nor any of my colleagues here um, have worked with. Uh, have done, but also that many of the schools that I have worked with directly have done, and that is to create a small core group of people who are committed to getting good at the model. A lot of people think they've got to do this with the entire school to begin with, but that's not necessarily the case. Um, get a small core group, get good at it, practice the skills, try Plan B with some kids, come back together, 
figure out what didn't go so well. Um, as you mentioned, uh, some folks do take advantage of this uh, radio program to call in and ask their questions. I think we're going to be hearing back from our teacher on the West Coast uh, next week to hear how her attempts at Plan B with one of her students went. Um, a kid who we tried to troubleshoot a little bit on about why Plan B wasn't going so well, and we're usually pretty successful at doing that. So, um, and then slowly but surely, as the larger group, as the core group starts to become more confident. Uh, at their uh, what they're doing and they can start inviting other people in the building in sometimes because there's other people in the building who are interested they've heard what's been going on and they'd like to be a part of it and sometimes because one of the other parties in the building has a what we might call a frequent flyer kid who they've really been struggling with and then sometimes the school leader is well positioned to approach that person and say why don't you come into our core group uh, why don't you come into our group, let's just talk about Billy, and um, let's see if the group, which has been tossing around all kinds of different ideas, uh, let's see if we can be of any help. Uh, and sometimes the school leader is actually the one who's best positioned to do that, sometimes not, um, but that's what it's looked like in a lot of buildings. And then what I frequently find is that the continuity piece then becomes crucial, because um, I think a lot of folks go into collaborative problem-solving thinking, one and done. One uh, yeah. plan B, we're done with the problem. And you've said some things today that uh, get rid of that misconception rather quickly. Did you go into this thinking, one and done? You know, I actually didn't have a, 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 a preconceived notion, but I did kind of think that I would be able to get to the root of some things a little quicker. But what I've noticed is that as my skills increase, I do get to the root of it quicker. So it, it, it kind of, um, so the answer, I, I know that's a complicated answer to a simple question. Yes, I did think it would be one or two conversations and done, but uh, I'm glad it's not because what I found is that by having multiple conversations with multiple people, it, it, you learn a lot about the kids and their needs. And I've found out that you know, there's a lot of resources to meet those needs right in our building. You know, I was on the phone with a different school this morning, um, and they were talking about how do we get other teachers on board? Um, and I, I want to ask you this question as well. How do we bring somebody around from an attitude like he's just defiant or he's just oppositional to a more compassionate, accurate, productive point of view? And my response was, there's nothing that comes close to having a teacher who isn't yet wearing collaborative problem-solving lenses sit in on another faculty member doing Plan B with a kid who the first teacher really wasn't understanding very well and using cliches to explain or describe. Nothing like having teacher number two hear what's going on in this kid's head what's coming out of his mouth, what's really getting in his way. And it's almost decipherable the moment at which teacher number two, the teacher who's been saying he's just defiant, he's just oppositional, he just, doesn't need, he just needs to try harder, he doesn't want to do well. You can see the look on their face register as they are coming to understand not only what's really going on with this student, but why the prior conception of why the kid wasn't doing well was really getting in the way. I don't know, have you had that experience too? 
Yeah, I think that, that – and I've had that experience with a variety of people over a long time that it's kind of like what I was saying before. There are some people who just naturally connect, quote, connect with the kids, and they can sometimes be perceived as the, the individual doing the placement of students and scheduling as good at dealing with an at-risk kid or, or so-and-so is really good with the kids. And a lot of times what ends up happening is they end up getting punished for having those natural skills because they get all the, quote, tough kids placed in their room. And so I think that, that I've always kind of struggled with how do we turn the paradigm, so to speak, you know, change the, the perspective, the lens, to recognizing that, that the person who, quote, does really well with at-risk kids or whatever, with tough kids, they are doing something different than the other people. And I think that sometimes people have components of what, what's been discussed in the collaborative problem-solving model uh, in place already, so when they learn about the model, they kind of run with it. Um, and then some other people have to change, like you said, change that lens a little more. And what that really comes down to is that if the kid could get their needs met, they would. And that's a major philosophical sh shift for a lot of people when they start working with CPS, is that you have to recognize that nobody wants to come to school and fail. Nobody wants to come to school and knock it along at recess. Nobody wants to come to school and feel like the, the teacher's mad at them all the time. They're, they're usually doing it because they can't get their needs met any other way. And that is a really tough concept for some folks to grasp. And I think the key to, to helping them to grasp that is to, to, to have them hear the stories about how other people have come a long way as the result of, of feeling supported and connected to other human beings. So... Speaking of needs, and of course collaborative problem solving often talks more in terms of skills, but what are you finding? What needs, without being specific about any student or without necessarily sure. referring to the neighborhood in general, what needs are you finding kids, unmet needs, are you finding walking in the door that you feel like collaborative problem solving helps you do a better job of meeting? Well, I think that it goes back to the simple human needs. You know, sometimes... I don't know that the kid's shoes don't fit, or I don't know that the jacket's not right, or they're, they're uncomfortable because um, they don't know how to tell somebody that the person next to them really upset and hurt their feelings, um, communication skills. Uh, a lot of times it's not, I, I want to be clear that, that it, it, I really personally just don't believe, nor have I experienced, that there are very many people who can't learn, Ross. There are very few people who cannot learn. There are a lot of people who have a bunch of stuff getting in the way of learning. Because I've seen kids who struggle in, quote, a traditional academic setting, pick up an automotive manual, read the whole thing, and fix a car in months, and excel in a vocational program. So my question is, what need were we not meeting in the, in the regular setting? Well, the need that we weren't meeting is that they couldn't see or touch a manipulative in front of them. And a good example of trying to deal with that is everyday math with the manipulatives or or in doing that school-wide. I mean, I'm just simply saying that, that the needs that I see coming through the door are usually fundamental human needs. And it's interesting to me because I've, I've seen it in, in neighborhoods or in my neighborhood school that, that has some folks who struggle, and I've seen it when I worked at a really affluent high school. Those needs are similar regardless of the, of the, um, the socioeconomic background sometimes. Now, sometimes kids come to school without shoes, clothes, they're not fed, they, they have some really basic needs, and sometimes the needs are more about skills 
and, and the ability to, to clarify reality for themselves. So I think Kim refers to it as a cognitive distortion. A cognitive distortion is just a misperception of, of what's really going on, um, and we all, we all have cognitive distortions. I'm sorry to report that we only have about five minutes left in the program. I've got two more questions for you. And unfortunately, sure. we're, we're a little bit too late in the program to take calls, so I apologize to the folks who've called in here at the end. Um, two questions. Um, question number one is, does collaborative problem solving have any – bullying is the, quite the buzzword these days, and there have been some tragedies here in Massachusetts that are good mm. reasons for bullying to be the buzzword. Um, collaborative problem solving have anything to offer in the bullying department? Yeah, I think that it's. I, I've attained a variety. I have attended a variety of trainings and workshops on bullying and harassment prevention, and it all comes down to power and control. And and I think that that the idea of CPS is that it helps the person who's the victim to articulate their needs and how to handle that, but it also helps the person who's the perpetrator or the bully or the harasser to get their needs met in a, more, um, in a more effective way because a lot of times people who bully and harass um, are, feel powerless themselves, so it helps them to learn how to, how to attain power and self-control. And sometimes folks who bully just need to, be, need to be, it needs to be addressed, and the CPS model just gives you kind of a framework for addressing uh, what's going on. So maybe the last question, we, if, if you, not that you should try to answer it quickly, but if you answer it quickly enough, I've got one more for you. Sure. Uh, uh, in, in terms of the role that you see yourself as the building leader playing, what, what's the most important role that you can play in transforming how your school deals with kids with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges? What what do you think has been the ingredient that's been that you've tried to bring to the table for your staff um, so that my word of the day continuity happens? Mm -hmm. Well, I had a great professor in graduate school who really changed my whole perception of of education. His name was uh, Ken Ken Murphy. He was uh, the superintendent of the Yarmouth School Department, and he taught me to believe in the continued improvement of student learning. So I continually improve student learning. That covers everything, social, emotional, uh, academic. So if my students are doing really well in one area, I might look at how we can do it better. So when I come to school every day, instead of expecting a quick fix or, or okay, I did X, Y, and Z, I'm done, I'm the school's principal, and we can just kind of do our jobs now, I never look at it that way. I am continually working to improve student learning in my school, which and my, my feeling, the, the most inspiring part of being a new principal for me is that I can have an effect on the emotional well-being of the adults who work in my building. I really care about them, and I really enjoy it when they struggle with something, and, and, then, it, and then they find a skill or a way to do things, and they, they like get better at it, and they enjoy that, and they feel, feel a little bit better about, a little more hopeful about their lives and the things that they're doing for work. That's really important, too. So we do have time for one more. You ready? Yep. You seem to have a special place in your heart for challenging kids. Um, any any reason for that? Well, yeah, I, I grew up in a in a pretty tough situation as a kid, and my guidance counselor was uh, in, instrumental. Uh, my dad graduated from high school, and my mom has a GED, 
and uh, I lived with my grandparents through high school, and my guidance counselor um, helped me to emancipate myself from my family so that I could become a, uh, um, a college student because I couldn't get financial aid. My mom uh, really struggled with how to handle all that, so he helped me, and uh, it was a profound, it had a profound effect on my life. I, uh, his name was David Ewalt, he works, uh, in, in, I think, in Carolina now, and uh, he, he was just a great guy, so uh, my second son's name is David, and uh, I, really, I really connected with him and my high school music teacher, among other people. I mean, there are just a lot of really good people who recognized that I could learn and gave me an opportunity to learn and, um, and supported me in feeling good about myself, and for that, I am eternally grateful. Mr. Ambrose, I am inter- eternally grateful that you have taken the time to participate in our program today. Just to reiterate your last uh, words, all it takes is one person to save a kid, one person to get the ball rolling. Thanks for joining in with us today. I think people got a lot out of your words. Oh, my pleasure, Ross. Talk to you later. You bet. Bye-bye. And um, that's going to do it for us today here on uh, our program. Hope you're able to join in next week for another edition of Collaborative Problem Solving in Schools. Talk to you then. 